1: Hey, this is Duray. and we're going to pause here with the people. In this episode, it's me, Kaya, DR, and Miles talking about the underreported news from the past week regarding race, justice, and equity. No interview this week because we had a lot to catch up on after the Labor Day weekend. We talk about the Queen's passing, Jay-Z's comments on wealth, everything happening with blackness on Broadway, and a couple other things, too. We are excited to have this conversation this week. And my advice for this week is to do the cool thing while you can. Uh, One of my best friends in the world is likely going to move to another country for a couple months because he has the time and flexibility and job to do it right now. And it's like, you know what? As much as I'm going to miss him, I'm so pumped that he uh, is like taking this big risk and going to another country and living in that moment, didn't get to study abroad when he was in college. And it's like, I love when people... Walk into the fear, the big decisions, the things that our parents uh, didn't have the option to do. So think about the big thing in front of you, the scary thing, the thing that you have a million reasons why you can't or it doesn't make sense and see if you can lean into that. Here we go.
2: Family. Family, family. Welcome to another episode of Pod Save the People. I am Diara Ballinger. You can find me on Instagram and saying very little on Twitter at Diara Ballinger. I
3: am Malsie Johnson. You can find me on Instagram at Foul Rapture and saying too much on Twitter at Foul Rapture as well.
4: <laughs> My name is Kaya Henderson. You can find me on Twitter
1: saying a few things at Henderson Kaya. This is Dre at D R E Y on Twitter, and I say all the things on Twitter. <laughs>
5: <laughs>
2: So this week, we lost Queen Elizabeth. There's been lots and lots of mixed feelings around this woman's life and now her death. Of course, huge RIP to Queen Elizabeth, but in my mind, what all comes together is the song from Wizard of Oz when the Wicked Witch is dead. Uh, I'm not saying she's a wicked witch. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying because of my trauma around white women, that's what pops into my mind. (laughs) Wow, the portrayal and all. (laughs) But again, RIP. No disrespect, (laughs) especially to her black grandchild. I'm just saying... That's what comes in my mind. I don't know what feels the rest of this family has around it. You know, there's some things I can say about colonialism, you know, and be real smart about it. But I think just inherently, like deep, deep down, like that is what that is what came to me when I heard about her her passing. Ninety six. Okay. I get that we
3: all have different relationships with death and everything, but my grandmother died at ninety-one, and when I tell you, I like that's it. Dabbed her up and said, "That was a good one, homie." And she had like, a good run. And, and I was like, I, I, everything feels a little for me. Just this is a apolitical. Well, what's apolitical? But this is just me just saying how I feel. I feel like everything feels a little melodramatic um that is a 96 year old woman who you know lived a, a long life you know that's a long time like met marilyn monroe like that's in-
2: but miles don't you think there's like it also gave me like some black family drama because when somebody dies and then you got to worry about that uncle that's got that's going to take stuff that's not his I feel like with the Prince Charles of it all, it gets complicated because it's like, we wanted her to live because we really don't know what we're going to get with him. Like, we're still trying to process (laughs) his participation in the Diana of it all, so.
3: I love, like, anytime, like, Twitter or social media is irreverent about anything that people take seriously because I love that brand of comedy, period. But that was the only thing where people, like, kind of, like, being funny about the Queen's death. I'm like... But the the what's happening next is not <laughs> like this is not the end of a monarchy. We're actually taking power from this white woman into this white man. So this is like old school, like we got a white old man president who who who's allegedly <laughs> who's allegedly coherent because <laughs> Biden is well. And we have and now we have King Charles and that and that is what our power looks like right now. This is old school white supremacist yeah. imperialism. <laughs> Buckle up. Ooh. This is OG. <laughs> Is looking in the- this is not this
4: is not the conversation that I thought we were going to be having about this, but this is hilarious to me. Um, I, here's the thing, right? I think it is like it's a moment, right? It's a moment to reflect. She was 96. She was going to die. She lost her husband. She had the COVID. These things happen. That's life. Um, but I think the big question, I think the like big question for people, one, there's been a like revolving question around like what is the relevancy of the monarchy, right? And if we want to keep it 100, the relevancy of the monarchy is they are the largest industry in the UK. They bring in more money than they bring in more tourist dollars than anything else in the UK. And so they are an institution at this point, like, because all the people love them and pay for them and blah, 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 and all that jazz. Economics, right? Um And like, I think there's, you know, clearly with all of the conversation about whether or not you should respect the queen and her death or blah, blah, or, you know, I think this is a moment to talk about colonization, to talk about reparations, to talk about giving back people stolen stuff. It's a moment to talk about the reinvention of the monarchy, right? Um, Charles, Charles, King Charles has been a... A sort of activist around climate change and environmentalism. And so, like, are we, like, what is, like, we've had this institution, the institution ain't the institution no more. And so, what is going to happen in this very symbolic and sort of unnecessary institution, I think is the interesting thing. But I do think that. Um, this conversation around, you know, remembering the colonialism and imperialism of the British crown is really important. Uh, you know, I'm all things education and we keep talking about teaching kids an accurate history. One of the most important things that I've seen is there was a map on the, uh, on some of the socials, which showed every country in the world that declared independence from the Brits and the years that it happened and it is astounding right like you've heard the phrase the the british empire the sun rises and sets on the british empire because it was so vast and when you really look at all of the countries, this little teeny island up in the Northern Atlantic controlled the whole entire world. And this has given us an opportunity to re-examine that, to like stop with the pomp and circumstance. It's cute and all, but where were y'all when the queen was having her 50th jubilee? Y'all was sitting right on a TV looking at Elton John and Diana Ross like the rest of the world, and nobody was outraged and whatnot. But now she's dead and we're having this whole conversation I think it's interesting. I think it's healthy. I think we got to be real about what teaching accurate history really means.
1: I didn't realize how little I knew about the colonial footprint. Obviously, I knew the history of colonization and what happened to Africa. I didn't know that out of the 193 member states and two observer states in the UN, only 22 countries were not invaded by Britain at some point. That is wild. So when we think about the sheer number of people that the country has killed, the societies that they have undone, the languages that have been destroyed by the institution. And, you know, the queen was there for a lot. She was queen for a long time. You know, I think she sat through 12 American presidents, countless prime ministers, right? Like it wasn't like she was like queen for a day. It's also interesting, my, my introduction, like probably some of you all's, to the monarchy was Princess Diana. I remember when Princess Diana died. I remember watching the funeral. I remember the whole pomp and circumstance around the people's princess and all that. And then the queen was like the antithesis to that. Like I, that was my introduction to the queen. She was the woman who didn't like Princess Diana, who was, you know, hanging out with. Uh, people in hospitals who were untouchables, people with HIV. She was that rolling down the hill. One of my favorite videos of Princess Di, she goes to one of the kids' things and like literally rolls down the hill to play with the kids. And people are like, a princess can't do that. So it will be interesting because, you know, everything we'd heard about Charles after Diana died, was ne- it was like, he cheated on Charles with Camilla. Da, da, da. And I know this just like, you know, I've done no real research. I just know it from, from public talk. But I I think this might be, you know, it'll be interesting to see if the monarchy survives Charles um, and if it survives sort of this moment where people are like, like she was such an institution that I think she became the symbol of it to what a lot of people thought. And I'll tell you, and you know, this is also the internet, is that the very, very video that came out, did y'all see it of Charles? He's like shooing the person away. It's like, you don't even have the great, like you can't even like pretend, you know, you just got here in, I've never seen a clip of of the queen like being unkind. You know, she just always sort of carried herself at least in the public. And the first video we have of him is like literally shooing this guy away. <laughs> You're like, okay, this ain't going to last long and uh it's been interesting to see the conversation.
2: All right. So moving from Prince Charles to Come on with that transition.
1: Yeah, she's she's a, a she's King Triton's uh well, youngest daughter. <laughs>
2: Right. She is. She's a, she is a princess and, and now a Nubian one. And we are so proud. So, so proud. So excited to see that the trailer of the, the it's going to be a live action Little Mermaid is coming out soon. Um, and she's just a doll. She just is gorge. And I'm excited to see this. In my mind, though, Ursula was always a black woman. So I'll be interested to see who's playing Ursula. Now, I don't want to go on a tangent because I'm also, it's about the Descendants, which is a whole Disney show that I've had to watch because, well, I feel like kind and DeRay would know because of teaching. But it's so funny how in the Descendants, how they make some of the, the descendants of the characters black. But it's always like the menacing ones.
5: Mm. Anyway,
2: that's a story for another day. But. Let's bring it back positive so we can have some positive conversation for today.
5: Um.
3: Cause once this is over, Cause. we going to some heat. One- <laughs> <laughs> we got some heat for that ass.
2: So curious to see if y'all saw the trailer and what are you thinking about it? I think you know, I'm I'm I I'm excited.
3: Cultural reset. Totally like I got chills. Hashtag my mermaid has locks. <laughs> Hashtag assault uh, fish ackey mermaids matter too. Like, I totally am sold. I was never like even a little mermaid person, and I'm so excited. And I think that Disney, f- from what I can see with this lab- live action animation, has failed to necessarily like capture the imaginations of um, like the public, like transcending like the the diehard Disney fans, because I think that even like the Lion King with Donald Glover and Beyonce, it just felt like an underwhelming reaction to me. I think this might be the one because it's aquatic, it's under the sea, it's already fan- fanciful. And I think also because they're already deviating from, you know, Mermaid Canon by making her black with locks, that also means that there might be story variations. So you're not just seeing this copy, like, look, this is, real life, you know, Mermaid and, and like, kind of copy and pasting it, how The Lion King was almost like a screen-by-screen copy and paste of the original, and it just became boring. And, like, what is this, like, like National Geographic movie with, like, Beyonce's Texas accent? It just was a mismatch. This feels like something that can really penetrate culture a la um, Black Panther did, too.
4: I like. I'm with you, Miles. I feel I have been not super taken with the whole live action thing, but because I, um, I, I, I feel like this is different, right? Seeing this image, maybe it was different because, it, well, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't see the the Lion King live action, but I, I just think that this. I think one, she is bringing a new set of folks to the conversation. And, you know, I'm always rooting for everybody Black, so I'm going to watch this one. I'm also excited about her expanding beyond just singing. You know, we are triple and quadruple threats, and I love, to, I love it when our people get chances to go beyond exactly what you think about them. And so I'm excited about this. I'm looking forward to watching
1: it next year. No, it is. It's like May 2023. Whew, y'all are this is quite the teaser. I will say I'm really excited to see Hocus Focus because that comes out sooner and Hocus Focus will be a, a jam. But the cool thing about Chloe and Halley is that we've seen them grow up. You know, we remember them as the girls on YouTube sitting in the living room or their rooms, making music. And now we've seen them become women and now we've seen them become artists in their own right. And and sort of growing up post YouTube, and the only people signed to Beyonce's label. And when I saw this, it was like, you know, they are—they're not a whole lot of positive stories that we have as as a group. But people just want them to win. You like you—you you saw Halle. You're like, girl, I just want you to win. I like they didn't—they didn't release enough of a clip. We need more of the songs. And you know what was the what's the other big song um, on Little Mermaid? Part of Your World. Go ahead. Come on now. People were like, now if they had released that, we would have been crying on the thing. You're like, oh, she's like, so I can't wait to see it, Hallie. And the other cool thing is that she's in the small group of women, singers, men or anybody who can actually just sing. She will be able to go to that premiere or whatever and bust that song out just like she did on that thing with no backing, no group, no music. And very few people can do that. So I'm pumped.
3: Yeah, I want a, uh, I want Beanie Man to, you know, yes! <laughs> yeah! the, not, together, not underneath the sea, okay. <laughs> under <the, laughs> under <the scene. laughs> or under the sea. Yeah, I like. Yeah, we need, we need a whole, a whole Negro take on that.
1: Don't go anywhere. More Pate the people's coming. People are talking more about the environment and understanding climate change than they've ever been before, I'd say, with the devastating floods in Pakistan, the water in Jackson, Mississippi, the recent anniversaries of Hurricane Katrina and Ida. Now, the ladies of Hot Take discuss how colonialism, both in the past and the present, put the weight of the climate crisis on the shoulders of the people who did the least to create it. Mary and Amy talked to Abram Lusgarden, a senior environmental reporter for ProPublica, to attempt to navigate the intersection of climate change and debt. Listen to new episodes of Hot Take every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Pod Save the People is brought to you by a factor.
4: Warmer, sunnier days are calling. at factormeals.com slash pstp50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while
0: your subscription is active. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new because Hulu has new stuff all the time.
1: Whew, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small, and we keep them bottled up. It can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down.
3: So, my news is around Jay-Z. So, Jay-Z, I'll just, I'll just say how it is. Jay-Z um, went on a Twitter Circles chat and talked to other rappers in the public about stuff that, I'm going to be really honest with you, is was, like, really boring. I kind of I forgot what, what, what was being said. But the one clip that got sliced <laughs> that I found fascinating was Jay-Z talking about money. Now... How I personally feel, and I and I think this is because when people are doing, like, music and they're artists, you don't kind of, like, you don't hide yourself away once you get money like, un- like other extremely wealthy people tend to do. So you still continue to say your opinions, but I think that we're able to project so much of familial parasocialness onto Jay-Z because of, A, how he establishes wealth, and then also just... Because of our imaginations. And his comments on money reminded you that that parasocial relationship you have in your imagination is just that a figment of your imagination. Um, So he says, before was the American dream. Pull yourself by the bootstraps and you can make yourself, you can make it in America. All these lies that America told us our whole life, he continued. And then when we start getting in, they tried to lock us out of it. They start inventing words. I don't think y'all hurt me. They start inventing words like you know capitalist, you know things like that. I mean, you know you've been called the n-word and monkeys and stuff. I don't care. I don't uh I don't I don't care those words y'all come up with. Y'all got to come up with stronger words. Sean J Z Carter said capitalist is a newly invented word. To weaponize against the uh the the victimized class of wealthy, successful black people. The most vulnerable group in America, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> Yikes. Yikes. I could not believe what I was listening to. And it's so interesting because I do like it's I have so many mixed feelings I love Jay-Z. I love American Gangster. I love Reasonable Doubt. I love Watch the Throne. I am such a big Jay-Z fan. And I was even, you know, I have mixed feelings about Black people who move in class because I have a mother who grew up in on Bainbridge in Brooklyn in the 1960s and 70s. Who got who who, who who did really well for herself and, and, and went from working poor, middle more middle class to middle, upper middle class by the time um, by the time I got here. And I know that any type of success and privilege that I experience is because I'm on the shoulders of what she did. And I can only imagine, and, and who's to say when that stops, you know? So am I saying like, oh, my, my mother wasn't evil because she didn't make it to a million dollars or a billion dollars? Or it's, I, I, just, I just have a lot of sympathy for that, for that, that class mobility. However, when Jay-Z decided to... I, I like looked up like Jay-Z's history, and I'm like, when you decide to quote Fred Hampton, when you decide to do the Black Panther stuff, when you decide to do all this stuff, I'm like, well, some of those people you quote in wrote books... Some of those people who you call them wrote books and talked about capitalism in the 60s and the 70s. And it kind of, it made me really sad because I always thought Jay-Z was, even if I didn't agree with the ethos of what he was saying, I always thought he was just this intellectual entity and I always thought he was really smart. But this made me think. About, I, I made me question his intelligence, and it made me question the the motivation behind certain things that he's putting out in the world. Because you're you're you you just could not be actually participating, and in, and in, and in, and reading these books, if and and no, and like you you could you couldn't be consulting with these like personalities and these icons if you're still saying that. Capitalist is the invented word a la the N-word and monkeys. Like that was just extremely disappointed. And then the last thing I'll say about it is it also speaks to how separate he must be from the, a- the, average, the average Black person in, in, in discourse. And I think because he has such cool social capital and has just cool, he's just wealthy and cool that you think that he's more connected. But I'm like, this is, King Charles level disconnection. If you like, if you, if you ask me, this ve- is this very extremely, extremely disconnected. And it made me sad. It made me a little bit curious. And I think that it's extreme, but it also reminds me of what I kind of continuously bring on to the podcast. And what I'm continuously really fascinated by is this growing separation inside of the Black community because of class and because of money and because of the ways we're all able to comport ourselves that we have to kind of really face how white supremacist capitalism manifests in our own personal lives because it can't always be a white versus Black thing. We have to look at it. And I think this is such an interesting way how somebody who sold crack in Brooklyn, who was presented with a morally bankrupt option in order to get money, has now arrived at this kind of, like, uh, conservative, like, rhetoric. And, yeah, yeah. What do y'all think?
2: Did Jay-Z sell crack in Brooklyn? Or was he <laughs> a backup dancer? I don't know. Okay, that, DR came out of left field, question. everybody. <laughs> but Welcome anyway. to you today. I, un- <laughs> <laughs> But here's my thing with Jay-Z. I've actually never been a Jay-Z fan. Um, I, when I was coming up, in real time when this music was coming out, there was also Nas and Tupac who rapped about bullshit, but also rapped about our people, right? And rapped about the pride and the historical context around Black people, Black culture, et cetera. Jay-Z was always talking about cars, clothes, and hoes. And so that was never... He didn't really do it for me. Now, I see his kind of, you know, his body of work it definitely informs how I see him as an entrepreneur, being an entrepreneur myself. And I would say a successful entrepreneur for black people. My philosophy is we can't, we shouldn't be making money off of the same institutions that oppressed our people. Meaning if I know the music industry oppresses black people, I'm not gonna build a music company that does the exact same thing the white folks was doing, Jay-Z. So the same thing with the sports agency. I'm not gonna build a sports agency that is doing the same, same stuff that a white sports agency. Like, why the whole point of to me, my philosophy, the whole point of us getting involved in these spaces is so that we can obviously create wealth for ourselves and our family, but also create wealth for the rest of the black community. Right. And so I see like these comments of Jay-Z's like his wealth and how he builds wealth is so individualized. It's not about the whole. It's not about the community. It's not. It's about him and his. Right. And so I'm never surprised about these things that he does. You know what I mean? Whether it's a partnership with the NFL, whether it's how he runs Rock Nation, whether it's how he shows up or doesn't show up in spaces. To me, at this point, he's Beyonce's husband, and like a lot of black women who are amazing that I know, they got bullshit ass husbands. You know what wow. I'm saying? So I think for me, that's that's the context for of Jay Z for me, Miles. So that's what I'm talking about.
3: <laughs> and just and even, even your piece on individual, I was even thinking because he was like had this other part. And um, in that same talk, where he was talking about like what I've done with my day and how many people he's gotten like incarcerate or out of um, incarceration and all this other stuff, which I do think is beautiful. But what also makes it it reminds me that no matter how much money you have, you can only think as big as your consciousness is. Because I'm like, if you have billions of dollars, that's not helping a person money. That's creating systems money. That's disrupting. That's disrupting how things go. Money. Like I'm not really impressed by. Oh, billionaires doing things that private citizens with no capital have been doing for a long time once you have that type of capital your imagination your consciousness should be bigger to think like what can i actually create in order to disrupt this whole system and not just help one individual not saying you don't do that but even him kind of counting as this as th- this as uh, something that he's done that's really well just felt like out of step you know
2: and and something about him because i also well, i've been watching these kevin hart uh, sit-down conversations. My, my, um, um, yes, I, I, did. I have. My um, I see. have been watching them. <laughs> I have been watching them. I watched the one with him and Pete Davidson. Fascinating. And I watched the one with him and Jay-Z. And Jay-Z seems to have so much trauma around Black people wanting things from him. Whether it's family members or homeboys or whatever. So I think, Miles, part of this is also just like his own trauma in trying to navigate the come-up And probably have being blindsided so many times by people who didn't have the best intentions. Because I just feel like most of the things he does, he does with like billionaire white people. And I feel like in his mind, he's like, I have more in common with this billionaire white person than I do with somebody that grew up the same as me. Which I like hanging out with white billionaires too. It's it's great, we have a good time. But I'm not going to confuse that with somebody that has the same... Just that same, the that, that grit and that that consciousness around growing up in a certain way, looking a certain way has, you know what I mean? Like, I just can't, that like, that that is ultimately like what I'm going to be at least, mo- not even most drawn to necessarily, but there's just a kinship there. And I don't, I, and I feel like that is broken for him. And that is also to why there's all like this individual. I feel like maybe I read happening. the
4: wrong article or maybe I like, I just had a, I Like, this conversation is so fascinating to me. So, like, I thought that he was basically making the point that when Black people become rich, like, when we actually win at the game that you have tried to keep us out of, right, then, like, we're bad for that, right? And when I was starting my business, like, I was going to raise money. And I had every time, like, I would talk to these White capitalists, they were like, "This is such a great idea. Why aren't you a nonprofit?" And I was like, "Cause when you have a great idea, you sell it to people, but you want me to give it away, and you want me to beg you <laughs> to have the money to give it away, right?" Literally, white people and are so, so funny. This He's so funny. Like, right? You oh, like? I, I took I took his I took his comments to mean like, you know, when we when we achieve what you have prevented us from achieving, then you got nothing but bad things to say about us. And I concur with that 250%. Now, I don't know about Jay-Z's individual personal trauma, or whatever. I don't know about whether he's reading Soul on Ice or he ain't reading Soul on Ice. But I I do know this of having hung out around some wealthy Black people. I mean, I think that One, there are problems of magnitude because we started our conversation talking about headphones and... Um, foundation wear by our favorite celebrities and all of the things that we like to buy. And so we, who might have started out very poor, are living a very different life. We ain't living a Jay-Z life, but we live a life that allows us to do things that are different than when we first started out or where our parents came from. And all of these class shifts are like psychologically, they're psychological shifts as well. And so I'm able to spend money on things that, like my cousins, my cousins and them can't spend money oh, on. I love and that. You're not gonna shame me for it because I go out and I work every day. And at the same time, there are certain things that I know about being poor that are never going to change. Right, and so and so, I think that it's hard to like. I, I've watched people go from like poor to super rich, and the mental shift that you have to make around that is. Huge, and I don't know who helps you do that. So my guess is that, like Jay Z, is probably struggling with the amount of money that he has, how to be benevolent when he, when he also has trauma around people always being in his pockets, um, uh, like figuring out for himself what collectivism or what black uplift looks like in this particular thing. I don't know. It just seems really complicated to me. Mm, Yeah, I basically took this as, don't be mad at us because we win in the game that you created. And I think there are ways to both win at the current game while you're trying to, you know, Miles, to your point about systemic change, while you're also trying to break down the system. And that's one of the things that I love about us, right? Like, I feel like that's what we're all trying to do. You're not going to shame me. Because I am, you know, making money or investing my money or like doing things that are trying to secure generational wealth for me and my people, right? Call me a capitalist because I started a company, but I started a company and, you know, when we sell our company or whatever we do, right, there will be lots of people who make money from that, who never had the opportunity to make money for that. That to me is systemic change. And you're not going to be mad at me because I sell my company for a $100 million. I'm just putting that out in the universe in case the universe would like to respond. 200, thank you. That's what I'm talking about. (laughs)
3: Hold on. It's talking too low. Yes, sir. Yes. Taxes don't eat that up. The taxes,
4: <laughs> the
2: investors. <laughs> but and I think and I and I think that's a separate thing too, because even like um Beatrice Dixon is a dear friend of mine and she owns she's one of the owners of Honeypot. Um and it's one of the things like when all of the things were happening around Honeypot, one of the things I thought about was wow, like also the pressure that's put on you when you are a black business owner from the community. And so when I saw this article, I thought Jay-Z, I thought who he was talking about were black people. I guess I didn't even think about it as like white people calling him things or making up words that already exist. Yeah. Because I just feel like, you know, those are your friends. Like, you know, those people. So why would they be locking you out? So I guess I was thinking about black people. And I think there's a discussion within our community around wealth, and what it means to build wealth. And if you do sell your company, that doesn't mean you're, you know, you're turning your back on the community or you're a sellout or da-da-da-da. To Kaya's point, like, you are trying to build wealth. So I think we're... Lots of things happening in this conversation, but... um, And... and
3: I think uh, so. In that same conversation, and I believe in the same article, he used one of the examples was was of course capitalism, um, and capitalist was well, like one of those pejorative words that were are now being invented for successful black people, and then also saying things like "eat the rich," um, and he named "eat the rich" as a phrase. So these are both political. These are deeply politically rooted ideas that are about anti-capitalism and not anti-capital. That not. People who are engaging in capitalism, that's kind of like a small way to think about it. These are, ide- eat the rich and, and capitalist and imperialist white supremacist, capitalist patriarchy, thank you bell hooks, are all phrases in order to describe these interlocking interlocking systems of oppression that like affect all of us. And it seems from my perspective that Jay-Z was seeing the public discourse because there are more young people who are talking about, um, who are talking about, who are anti-capitalist. It's, it's, it's not something that's just happening in academic discourses or black feminist discourses or whatever, but this is something that a person who's watching your euphoria and listen to Alien Superstar and will say, my zodiac sign. I love Alien Superstar and I'm an anti-capitalist in their Twitter bio. And I will be your average eighteen to thirty-one year old, like right now. So this is something that's penetrated the uh the the zeitgeist in a different way. And I see it as Jay-Z making critique on this what he feels like is new, which is something that's just bubbling over. So there's been so many academics and Black feminists and and Black revolutionaries like Angela Davis and Assata Shakur and and p- and people a part of the Black Panther Party who've been talking about anti-capitalism, and now it's kind of hit this like fever pitch where we're all engaging it. And then you know the Fight for Fifteen stuff, um, the child I'm t- I'm too young to remember this, but the um Occupy the the, the walk on, Wall on Street. um <laughs> is it the walk on Wall Street? Occupy.
4: No I was like what. <laughs>
3: Occupy Wall Street. Walk I was I was I was very young. Uh-huh. <laughs> the f- the f- The fact that I can remember it is a miracle. But like all, but the <laughs> but the Occupy Wall Street, all 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 that stuff has been kind of feeding this like moment where it is very normal to say you're anti capitalist or to say that you're like you're a Marxist or you study these different things and still be a part of discourse. And I feel like it's a shame because that means. To me, that you haven't engaged in the literature of the people who you appropriate in order to seem relevant because you would know that this is actually this is a long coming kind of conversation. So that's how come I didn't take it as like this personal thing or this thing that's happening between like white people who see you as being successful. And now they're saying, well, you need to be you need to be a mammy with your money. In your business, where I get to be evil white capitalist. Like I didn't see it as that discourse. I saw it as him seeing what young people are talking about, him seeing what um people in general are talking about, and now saying, Y'all just start talking about this because I got a billion dollars now. No, this has been going on, sir. We've been talking about this, and now <laughs> and you're and you're in the eye of the money storm because you're not a private billionaire, you're a public one, and you're one who sells these your billionaire status to publications so we can continue to know the narrative of your wealth.
1: Well, I'd say, you know, in the organizing world, we often say that uh, people have the experiences before they have the language. And part of our work is to not always penalize people for not having the languages, but trying to get as close to the experience as possible. And Kai, that's what I think you sort of pushed us to do really well is to think about like what is this experience and how dissonant is that and how do people process it and think about it even if they don't always have the language and Jay-Z a couple of times has struck me as someone and I think this is what is hard for people is that his art is language right he has the he has the language about so much so well and like the double entendre you're like you nailed it right uh, and then in this moment talking about politics or in these moments talking about politics, it's like the language just escapes him. Like he, when he, when they launched reform, which is a social justice story that he's on the board of and helped start, uh, I was in the audience and he says like, and I quote, you know, but don't get me wrong, but if, if you commit a crime, you should go to jail. And I'm sitting there like, not the drug dealer. Like you actually do not, you don't believe, like you wouldn't be here.
2: Duray, Duray, backup dancer. Stop it. <laughs>
1: You wouldn't believe it, like, you wouldn't be here if that was actually the, like, straight up, like, you you know, there the civil right, there are a million laws that people openly violated because they were, like, you do not believe that everybody who breaks a law, like, I don't think you believe that. I do think that, like, you have not been exco- exposed to people or places that, like, push you on the language, and, and Miles, you bringing this up, like, highlights that to me, that, like even forget how he said it just the idea that capitalism as a word or concept is new is just so wild that you're like i don't even know if i'm mad at you i'm just like confused i'm like who who did not tell you that that wasn't true like that is sort of wild to me so but this also reminds me of what happens when you know in the world of social media we have more access to to celebrities than ever before but but they also don't have a place to go to learn. And that is, you know, I spend a lot of time with people, celebrities who, like, don't know up from down, haven't read a thing, don't know, don't have anybody to ask a question about, but they feel compelled to talk about things. And it's like, "Mm, you actually could have just, like, sat that one out. I think Cardi is probably the most informed of the hyper-visible celebrities who, like, she'll talk about labor and stuff, and you're like, that was right. You ain't got to like her. But she is right, you know? She is
4: super informed. It is, like... It is shocking because, you know, given her image, we don't expect the level of nuance, complexity, just plain old informativeness that she brings to the table. It's I mean, I I do think that part of this is also like we expect celebrities to be everything.
3: But I think if you do the music to was that movie called the Black Judas and the Black Messiah that was about. Fred Hampton. It was about Black p- Panther Party. If you're, if you're, if you're profiting in that way off of <laughs> <laughs> the Black Panther Party, you gotta crack open. Do the you
4: that's okay? For real, for real. Like, if people didn't grow up reading, maybe they don't read regularly as grown-ups, right?
3: So that is that. That's 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 those are words. <laughs> so yes,
5: those are words. <laughs> Boom. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, I think that I that, think is, think that's totally that is
4: the true. most think... polite diss I have ever got.
2: But, <laughs> but they're doc, but they're documentaries. You can watch it. And if
3: I'm if I'm honest with you, I think some of my most illuminating intellectual moments have been through discourse has been through hearing somebody who disagrees with me i have not been as illuminated by any book and i've read some astounding academics and writers um if i had to mark my intellectual growth in milestones it would be f- it w- it's through conversations it's through having these talks and being challenged on my thoughts and i think when you have the money to say hey y'all seem pretty smart and y'all all don't agree with me i'm going to get a yacht and some food and let's argue that could that that could do just that could do 10 years of consciousness raising in that moment for an individual I'm, I'm being pretty serious like that's how that's how I feel mm-hmm. I to- I
4: I totally agree but there is a like there is a thirst for knowledge miles that you have that lots of people that we know have that not everybody has some people don't want to learn something different or be challenged or whatever. And so I think, um I think that the uh, like could, sure. But if that's not what's on your agenda and I don't I don't know Jay Z. I don't know what he maybe he has salons right. every month and maybe he don't. I don't know. But um, but right. I do think that your point about, and I, I'm I'm going to pull this out from Jay-Z and yes. say all of us, right? All of us need to be challenging our perceptions. All of us need to be surrounding ourselves with people who don't agree with us. All of us need to be listening to the channels that are not the regular channels so that we understand what else is going on out there. And I think that is something that school doesn't exactly teach us how to do. Like that practice is cultivated, right? Right. And we got to figure out ways, especially for Black people, to cultivate that practice of
3: constant learning, and how you comport that. That's 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 that's, that's honest. That's honest, child. <laughs> but that's so, that's so much money to come at that. And the last thing I'll say about it. <laughs> that's, last thing I'll say about it because it just really just boggles me. Was also I do think this is a good uh, show of how wealth does, like, conser- make conservative an individual. Because, yes, I think we can have this whole conversation about, like, you ain't to read the right books. You just really do have the right conversations. But I also think that we're we, we're seeing, like, this, like... Funny that his wife came out with Renaissance, which means rebirth. But we're seeing, like, this other kind of, like, rebirth in Jay-Z into a conservative figure. Because a lot of the stuff that he did say felt very conservative. And I think that wealth, that kind of wealth... um. Uh, supporting, <laughs> like, cre- create those type of I- ideologies. And I, and I think we're seeing in real time somebody be um, reborn into a more conservative figure. That That's my cherry on top.
1: I will say the only thing I'll add is that given the work I do is structural and, and that is like how, how we think about the world, is I do think there are a lot of people with money who really don't, you know, and there are a lot of organizers, frankly, who when you're like, we want structural change and da-da, people like... Don't really know how to like. They don't like. There isn't like a quick or easy way to think about it. Most people's experience is like, well, give the, do this thing for the ten people that like the people in the structures don't even know how to manage the structures all the time. So, I, so I am sensitive. I think about the police a lot and criminal justice. Is that like when you ask a lot of the leading orgs, like, what what would you do structurally? The answer is actually not structural. They're like, well, hire ten more people. Like, it actually like. It's even a hard link for me sometimes when I talk to people. I'm like, that's not a structural fix. That's sort of like a program that you want to stand up, but that's not a scalable thing. And I would say that with the elites, one of the things that I get frustrated by with the richest of the Black people is that they don't really realize that, like, we've not had a generation of Black wealth transferred to the next generation. So, like, if you if you are trying to plan for your daughter or son or cousin or, like, the next generation of people, if you don't do something systemically, then, like, it won't matter. Either, you know, somebody will die at childbirth because those statistics are bad, the police... Are, like, the system will actually crush Black people generation to generation, and your wealth will not last. Like, there is no... You know, when one of your kids is driving down the street in the back roads of Alabama, it won't matter that their dad is a Black billionaire in the moment, you know what I mean? And that's what I... That's what, If Serena... Is having a fight with the doctor about her health care in at the hospital giving birth? then like that is a sign that the that that the system is actually struggling, and celebrity and wealth, black or not, actually cannot. Steve Jobs had cancer, and he had every tool you could, you know, like the structural things actually matter.
0: Don't go anywhere. more politics the people's coming You like to watch new stuff, right?
4: My news this week is about uh, some recent uh, educational test results that came out uh, a couple weeks ago. There is an exam called the NAEP, the National Assessment of Educational Progress, that has been happening since sometime in the 70s, early 70s, I think is when they started testing. Um, It's the gold standard of tests because it's not a test you can prepare for. Basically what happens is some people that you've never seen before show up in your schools and school districts. They walk into classrooms, they take some kids, a random sampling of kids, and they give them a test and then the then it's over and those people go and score the test. So there's no way to game this test. There's no it, they, it's called the gold standard of testing. And they use it as a dipstick basically to see where kids in America are over the years. And what has happened over the last 20 or so years um, is that in education, we've made a lot of progress, clearly not as much as we need to make. But over the last 20 years in education, we've made a lot of educational progress, especially with kids of color and low-income kids. Um, But the most recent examination of the NAEP showed basically that the pandemic has set us back um, literally to where we were back 20 years ago. Nine-year-old, they look specifically at the test results for nine-year-olds in reading and math, and the scores fell by the largest margin in more than 30 years. Now, these declines happened across all races and all income levels. But as you can imagine, you've heard the saying when you know when America gets a cold, black people get pneumonia. Um, the worst results came for our lowest performing students. Um, our, our students of color um, and our poorest students. In fact, in math, uh, white students lost five points, black students lost 13 points. And, um, you know, people are arguing about whether or not this is really right. Did we go back 20 years um, in the last two years? And I think the semantics are not what matters. I think what matters most is there is a pretty dire educational crisis happening right now in this country that I don't think people are taking as seriously as they need to take. Um, We have flooded schools with money. Um, and money is really important, but we haven't actually changed how we're teaching or what we're teaching. We haven't attended to the mental health issues that our young people are facing when they come back to school. When you look at levels of violence in schools right now, it's up significantly. Um and basically, after two years, we're like, okay, let's just go back to business as usual. They make the point that um, a lot of the reasons why this achievement gap, which is what you've heard it called, the gap between white students and students of color, and why it's been exacerbated so dramatically is because schools in low-income African-American and Hispanic neighborhoods were likely to be remote for much longer than in white neighborhoods. And there's been a huge conversation around school closures, even still today. Like there's the, should we have closed? Should we have closed for so long? Should we have gotten back to business? Because in a number of places where schools did go back and went back early, you saw a lot of gains being recovered. Um, But there's conversations even now about whether or not to close schools for snow days in New York City. They just eliminated snow days and they're going to go hybrid here in Washington, D.C. There's a huge debate because um, the city is so interested in kids coming back to school that they are not offering any hybrid or virtual models um, for kids who might need to stay home because of health issues or what have you. And so I think there's this huge conversation. Like our educational system is it's not on fire, like it is crumbling before our very eyes. And there's an African proverb that I love that says when the elephants fight, it's the grass that gets trampled, and our children are the grass. Our children are the one ones who are paying for all of these political, you know, um, debates and conversations that we're having. And while a lot of people think that it's hyperbolic to say we've lost twenty years of progress. Like the hyperbole is necessary because people don't really understand what is and isn't happening in classrooms. Shout out to teachers and principals who are in there doing it every single day, who are confronting the realities. It's back to school time. And and I don't think that we are appropriately recognizing the job that these folks have to do. Um, so they've got a huge academic job to do. They've got huge social and emotional and relational jobs to do. Um, And I just wanted to bring this to the pod because I don't think that we are talking about how, you know, badly the children are faring in this post-pandemic moment.
3: So one of the things that, like, what I took from this, actually, I just have a series, I have, like, a series of, of like, questions um, because I know that you all are the Education Insiders. What's the actual... Plan Like, is, is there any plan to, like, look forward to or that people can advocate towards, you know? Because I think I've heard so much about, you know, things that some people are saying hyperbolic and then other people are saying, like, no, it's, it's what's going on. But I haven't really heard so much of, like, what is the... What can people organize around who read this and who are not a part of it, like me, who are not a part of the education system but want, but are terrified by this news?
4: I don't think that there is a, like, collective plan um, but if you ask me, one, our kids need more instructional time. So they need more time. And I, and by instructional time, that doesn't just mean like more of the same academic garbage that they've been getting. It is more time doing interesting, rigorous tasks that are worthy of their time and attention. It is individualized help. You'll hear a lot of people talking about tutoring. Tutoring is not the end all be all, but it is a really important um, it's a really important way to gain ground., um, I think we have to advocate for more um, mental health supports in schools, counselors, social workers, psychologists. I think we have to advocate for, more play, more music, more art, more PE, more things that engage young people. Because when young people are engaged, when school is fun, academics soar, confidence um, increases, leadership increases. Like, it, for me, it's really simple. What do you want for your kid? You don't want your kid to just do reading and math, be able to read and do math. You want your kid to play an instrument. You want your kid to be a digital native. You want your kid to master a sport, master a foreign language, study abroad. How do we build out? systems of education that speak to the whole child where if art is their thing they get to pursue that whatever it is like we have to we we are building back the same crapola that we had before and we can actually demand something very very different for our young people
3: yeah I think you know and this is not to like undermine just how devastating this must be for the children at all so I don't want that to be taken that's how I'm saying it but I do think Hearing this because I know that my public education in Georgia child was hor- was horrendous. Um, I think that this is an opportunity to create to 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 reimagine something that seemed to even before the pandemic already be on its way out. And I felt like just like even when I was in high school, middle school, elementary school in Georgia, because it was such a, n- not a well performing you know state to be to be in, that was always a constant. I was always had that like in the back of my like in back of my head, so I was never, uh, I, I never had a myth of like of going to a really good school or that the school system wasn't broken. And I think this is a time to like recreate something and like take that information you just said and really apply it to something that seemed to already be suffering, and then the pandemic just kind of hyper sped it up from what I can tell from the periphery.
2: And I think the other thing just about the impact, just this overwhelming impact of COVID. One million people died in the United States. And we haven't said rat, cat, dog about it. I mean, we haven't had a national memorial. We haven't had a, 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 a cultural healing around just the loss of human life, the loss of, ways of life, the loss of business, like, we, it's just like, we've just forgot about it. It's just been like, move on, move on, it's over, move on. And I think part of that is, I mean, in mean—in—in—in in, in our generation, we never really haven't gone through something like that. And so I think partly it's the pushing past it is a way that people are actually coping with it. But I think what we're starting to see, Kaya, we talked about this ad nauseum during COVID is the anticipated societal systemic institutional impacts of COVID. And we're seeing that across education. We're seeing that across health. And so I don't know at what point there is like a national reckoning around. Like it happened and this is what that meant. But I think this is just a a big part of that. Like we have not, dealt with the loss that covid brought us
3: that really resonated with me diara and that, that you like you just saying that just instantly made me go back to me losing a friend and how I needed to go through my griefing period period but I kind of denied it and suppressed it, and that manifested as um alcohol and substance abuses that manifested as um in in uh, like rage it manifested in so many toxic ways and I, it just really resonated with you kind of like Connecting that with me and saying, "Oh, this is this is how it looks like when a community does what I did as an individual." You know, this is what happens when a when a state does what I did as an individual. And um, yeah, that that just go on, Pastor. That was good for me. I
1: do think this is one of the things too, where it's like two things can be true. I've seen some people get really frustrated with these articles. Like, of course, I was learning law. So much happened. It was crazy. Like this idea that. That that like obviously there were consequences, but we need to focus on, you know, making sure that people are safe and healthy. This idea that like people are complaining about this, and and like I've seen that actually a lot on uh, in some activist circles, and I get really frustrated because and and I agree that like you know we needed to make sure people survived, and that was hard, and we didn't get everybody, and you know we lost all our lives. The other thing is like what does it mean when there will be a generation of kids who just, like, don't know how to read, right? Like, there's a like a whole set of kids who just didn't learn phonics. They weren't lucky enough to have a teacher or a cousin who was a parent. They couldn't afford a pod to put their kids in. There wasn't, like, the set of two, three, four, five, who, like, they just, for all the reasons that we talk about, systemic injustice, poverty, like, just didn't get an access to a strong core foundation and I will tell you, and Kai, I believe you probably agree that the, the early years super matter. And it's once you get off track, it's just hard. You know, once you're a fifth grader that can't read and yes, we need to reimagine grades and who says you, like all that stuff is true. And the system we got is what we got. And when you are a fifth grader who just doesn't know the letter sounds, that is just a hard. like we have not seen very many schools, districts or classrooms, frankly, close that gap in ways that put kids back on track. And I think that, like, as you can imagine, poor people and people of color suffer more in those situations. Because I, I know a lot of wealthy people who, like, I know a lot of teachers, and I know people who just, like, hired somebody to teach a pot. Like, they were fine. School didn't work, and they might have missed some things, but, like, can they read and write and do addition? Those kids, they were fine. You know, the high schoolers will, like, you know, we it might be more chance to help those kids. But I think about the early kids who just lost uh, like years of solid basic instruction. And like, that is, that is huge. And that is not the people I see complaining about this being overblown. You know, it's not their kids. It's somebody else's kids who they'll be complaining about in two years. Like why they do that thing. It's like, they can't read. You know what I mean? Like we we punted on that as an issue a decade ago and here are the consequences. So my news my new is also about education. And I feel like I've said this the last three weeks where I'm like, I read something that really shocked me, but this one, I'm like, who knew? This is about the Hasidic Jews in Brooklyn. And let me just read the first two paragraphs because the New York Times reporters wrote it better than I can paraphrase it. The Hasidic Jewish community has long operated one of New York's largest private schools on its own terms, resisting any outside scrutiny of how its students are faring. But in 2019, the school, the Central United Tal- the Central United Talmudical Academy, Agreed to give standardized to give state standardized tests and reading and math to more than a thousand students. Every one of them failed. woo Y'all. So the state gives about a billion dollars to the Hasidic community to run schools. And they have had pretty much no oversight. But because of complaints, de Blasio opened up an investigation and it was halted during COVID, but that was sort of like the genesis of pushing for some sort of oversight. And there are a set of people saying that this is a violation of the law, the state law, guaranteeing children an adequate education. And so the question is, what is happening in the schools that they are not learning how to read and write? And what's happening is, is that they are teaching Jewish law, prayer, and tradition, and virtually offering no English and math or only offering English and math after all the religious studies are done. So they learn, like, a ton of stuff that is religiously really important. But, and they quote one of, they quote a former student in this piece saying, you know, he had to lead a community because he realized he was an adult, couldn't do basic math, like, wasn't strong in all the other things. Uh, And they go through a schedule and it notes that most, most of the schools offer reading and math just four days a week, often for 90 minutes a day, and only for children between the ages of eight and 12. Some schools discourage further secular study at home. One school had a rule that, quote, says no English books whatsoever. And English teachers cannot speak the language fluently themselves in some of the schools, they said. And I say all this to say that, like, you know, if you've been in Brooklyn and you've seen some of the the Hasidic Jewish communities, very tight-knit communities, like a lot of institutions that they own and manage, there are about 200,000 Hasidic Jews in New York in New York, making up roughly 10% of the state's Jewish population. And the question becomes, how have they gotten away with delivering virtually no no education outside of religious education in the biggest city in the country for so long? And the answer is voting. They vote as a block, and they guarantee their votes to politicians, and that has staved off oversight. So, you know, people have brought this up to Eric Adams, and he has— just reminded people that he's close to the Hasidic community. The current governor is also staying out of it, saying, you know, she just sort of like, no. Uh, and, you know, all I could think about was, now y'all know if this was a group of Black schools, the Department of Education at the national level would be here. this would be, they'd have us. This would be undone. They would have-
4: State takeover, federal takeover, Maybe, People would have been fired, maybe. heads rolled, all kinds of jazz. Shame on every single newspaper. It would have been terrible,
3: national news. Or they would have been like, "That's that's just where we want y'all."
1: No, I. The state would with the billion dollars. If if the if the Oh the billion dollars. If, billion the, dollar news would is. Have, if it's the news, the money, <laughs> baby, it's paid the money, it's the money. taxpayer money yes. to private schools to educate mm-hmm. black kids, oh, yes. and not one child. Oh, yes. it would be these. They'd be shamed out of New York. People would be
4: in jail. No, no. People would be in jail yes. if they were Black people.
3: Forgot about
1: that yeah. billion dollar <laughs> <laughs> detail. <Honey. laughs> um, so, I, so I'll stop and just say one of the things that, again, shocked me, and they interviewed over 200 people for this story. They said that a former teacher provided hundreds of pages of worksheets from the past five years that showed that 12-year-olds, mind you, 12 is like seventh grade, could not spell words like cold and America.
4: Let me tell you something. Those, the, the pages from the notebook were astounding,
2: astounding. So I'll stop. I'll
1: pass it over to y'all. I can't wait to see what you just say. But this is like, it legitimately shocked me.
2: <laughs> so this is going to sound like a little bit of a tangent, but it's not. A couple of days ago, my Auntie Terry, who lives in Minneapolis, Minnesota, texted me, and sent, texted me a text that said, there's an outbreak of polio happening in New York State, your governor just called for a state of emergency. So I'm like, there go Monty Terry again on the Facebook. Who know? Like, what, what is this fake story? Come to find out there is a state of emergency going on with the lack of vaccinations with polio. And it's happening in predominantly Hasidic communities, right? And so I live in Williamsburg and my neighbors are the Hasidic community. And we had another... There, Like Every two years, there's some vaccination crisis, right? And so it could be tetanus, it could be polio, it could be COVID, whatever it is, they ain't getting them, okay? So first of all, that's a whole issue. The other issue, why this is not surprising to me at all, is because we still allow for these folks to engage in child marriages. These, These young people, they're getting married at 15, 16, 17 years old. And like, it's happening, it's like rampant. So I feel like... I don't know, this is, I don't, the the politician, the vote block thing, I did not know that. And that really blows my mind because these are, like I said, they're New Yorkers and they're my neighbors. And the fact that they're just at, because of policy, the lack of policy, because of lack of concern, because people want their votes, they're actually putting their own lives at risk. And they're also violating basic constitutional human rights rights. Of, pe- of of young people, so clearly I get a little hyped up with this one because I see them every day. Uh, it it's wild.
3: Okay, so blew <laughs> you blew my mind, Dore, and I'm I'm like I'm like Miss Pessimist. So like it's really hard for me to like <laughs> get overwhelmed by something overwhelming. And then the first thing that was triggered in my head is a. How so I just think that the d- discourse around uh Jewish folks, specifically around black people, is hard because I think that anti-Semitism is real. So sometimes it's hard to um, or at least for me, I'll just say for myself, it's hard to publicly critique something that I see because I do never want it to be warped as like anti-Semitic. And um, but when I heard this story, my fr- my 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 um brain f- went totally into feminist mode. And I think about how conservative, traditional religions are not always the safest place for women, and not always the safest place for queer people, and how what does help look like? I actually remember seeing a couple of, um, I've, I've seen documentaries on just different religious groups and also things that are considered cults. Um, and then also about like parents who have like, I'm not trying to conflate these two, but I promise you I'm going to bring them together. But also parents who have like, kept, who have abused their children and kept them out of school. And I remember that one of the things that helped the child be able to get help is the fact that she knew how to read. As, remember the thing that helps the the child uh, uh, get help is that she was like, she found out what the letter 911 looks like and how it was on the phone that she had to steal and how that saved her. And I can't help but go into the darkest place when it comes to this story about how many people are being victimized and are in harm's way and don't have the access to actually leave this community or to uh, f- like find help. And, I, and again, do not want to sound anti-Semitic, do not want to say that every, that it's something to leave if you choose to be there. But I think I, we would be fooling ourselves that we think that the Hasidic community out of this imperialist, white supremacist, capitalist patriarchy, that this is a group where there's no violence happening, there's no um, abuse happening, there's no homophobia, transphobia, um, uh, uh, domestic uh, abuse happening, and how literacy and how education helps people escape that. That's, the, that's just the first place that my mind went. Of, of, of course, the, the money and the politics, wild, but it also just frightened me and terrified me.
4: The violence is, is in fact, one of the pieces of this story, right? That, in fact, in a lot of these schools, corporal punishment is how they do business, literally beating kids. Um, and many of the folks talk about how um, traumatized they were from the beatings that they got in these schools. I mean, this, the, I'm, I'm going to go down the money road, right, because tax dollars technically are not supposed to go towards religious education. But if you look at what has been happening um, over the last 20 or 30 years, there have been increasing opportunities in a lot of different ways. And this is what the Republicans are super excited about, voucher programs that allow you to take government money and send your kids to religious schools. That's how some of this money is funneling to the um, Hasidic schools. They have um, a bunch of different... I mean, the Times did this did this analysis, which while it shows that um, the yeshivas receive less per pupil than public schools, they actually get more government funding on average than private schools in the state. And in fact... The city voucher program that sends that helps low income families pay for childcare now sends nearly a third of its total assistance to Hasidic neighborhoods. Like, what? A third of the money in the city going to voucher programs for this is going to the Hasidic community. There's another program that provides more than $50 million a year to Hasidic boys' schools that say that the end of their day is child care so they get money for child care they got 30 million dollars from government financial aid programs because they say their older students are pursuing higher education degrees in religious studies. They're not higher education degrees. They are their own regular religious training. They got $100 million through anti-poverty programs to provide free breakfast, lunch, and dinner and snacks every day to virtually all Hasidic boys, including during the summer. No girls, just boys, right? And they buy the food from the retailers that they own, so they are using this money to profit in their own community, um, they got a hundred million dollars from Title One, which is for the poorest folks, and then get they got thirty million dollars to transport students. Created for a program created specifically for yeshivas, and you see the yellow school buses all over Williamsburg. But get this, they also got $200,000 in federal money for internet related services, and they forbid their students from going online. Y'all, if this ain't a hustle, I don't know what a hustle is. And the Duray, as you pointed out, the inaction, the lack of accountability because of the politics and the voting is. Insane.
2: Y'all, my news quick and easy. I am so excited about the theater season. So excited to be back in the theater. And there's so much amazing, amazing, blackity, black, 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 black musicals and theaters happening this fall. So excited first about August Wilson's The Piano Lesson that Samuel L. Jackson. John David Washington, that's Denzel's baby for y'all that don't know, and Danielle Brooks are starring in. It's being directed by Samuel L. Jackson's wife. It's a family affair. Latanya Richardson Jackson. It's also being co-produced by a bunch of people and Candy Burris and Todd Tucker. If y'all don't know them, you need to go watch Atlanta House, Housewives of Atlanta any season and you'll find them. The other thing that I'm excited about is Lee Daniels' Ain't No mo. And it's basically based off of what would happen if the United States government gave black people a ticket to go back to the motherland. Sign me up. The other thing I'm excited about is, and yes, I'm flipping through the New York Times, and if y'all have the, this last Sunday's, it is just glorious. It goes through everything that's happening in the fall, um, through the winter, across everything. Dance, theater, arts, yada, yada, yada. The other one I'm excited about, which I saw years ago... Um, it's Top Dog, Underdog, and so it's starring this time um, Yaya Abdul-Mateen and Corey Hawkins. I saw years ago with, I don't know, the man formerly known as Most Deaf and um, and Jeffrey Wright, and they were incredible, um, but it's coming back, and it's also amazing. It's a two-man show. It's Susan Laurie Parks, Top Dog, Underdog. We love Susan Laurie Parks. So excited to see that as well. And something I'm curious about is the musical 1776, which is a revival It's coming back and it's about the signing. Um, what was it, the signing? I think it's Independence Day, the signing. What happened at Continental Congress? The it's Declaration of Independence. It's, it's like a Hamilton thing. <laughs> Declaration of Independence. But I guess they're doing it and they're going to, it's like a very diverse cast, right? So that's supposed to be um, what's happening there. So all that to say... I am just excited to be in New York, excited for theater season, and I hope we talk about all the things that are happening that are not in the New York Times obviously as we keep moving through the fall and winter season. So that's all I had for y'all.
1: I will say um I uh, sorry, my father, I, my father's birthday is coming up. Happy birthday, daddy. And uh I got him tickets to MJ on Broadway. And my father is like, somebody tweeted when um when Dream Girls came out, they tweeted, Do you remember being in the in the movie theater when Dream Girls came out and everybody clapped when Jennifer Hudson sang sing?" and I'm telling you, like people stood up, clapped like it was church. My father is that type of person. So he was like, Direct. I had to, he was like, because I was with my friend, I wasn't too loud last night. But I just he was like, it was so good. And it's like, it's like, you know, we need to take more people to see theater and like, you know, because my father was like, this is great. And there's a lot, a lot of good content. I will say some of the coolest nights I've been on Broadway have been the black nights where they like people intentionally get black people to go. It is a whole different experience to be, to to see black content around black people. And if I ever ask get my dad to come again, it'll be on a night where like, it can be black people, so 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 like the expressiveness and in the interaction with the material is like a normalized thing and not some like wild thing where they're like, "Why is this man talking? And he's like feeling weird about it." Uh, but he loved it, and uh, I always love his love of the theater when he gets to go, which is not as often as he would like or I would.
4: I will say, last year was one of the blackest seasons on Broadway. Hashtag Broadway so black. Um, 2021 saw 10 Black plays on Broadway, which was unprecedented. And I think that they... Have figured out that we like theater too. And that black oh, they, they like, they,
2: they'll buy <laughs> they, tickets. They, they I mean, uh, well, what is wrong with y'all?
4: They also, you know, we're also culture creators. And so we have some of the most creative and provocative and untold stories that it just feels like it makes me breathe differently to know that, like, we don't have to fight for a place on Broadway, right? That, and so I think if we had 10 in 2021, let's hope that we'll have more than 10 plus in 2022. Mm-hmm.
2: And Strange Loop is still playing. I'm finally seeing Strange Loop next week or the week after next. So excited about that.
4: And- and here's the thing. Some is going to be good and some is going to be bad. And guess what? Some white Broadway is good and some white Broadway is bad. So don't come to me when something is not super exciting and it's black. Like, I'm still going to come. Look, look.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I'm going I'm to tuck my mess. <laughs>
1: Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to of the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we will see you next week. Pods of the People is a production of Crooked Media. It's produced by AJ Moultre and mixed by Veronica Simonetti. And executive produced by me. Special thanks to our weekly contributors, Kai Henderson, DR Ballinger, and Miles Johnson.